episode 62, What You Need to Know About HIEs. Laura Adams from the Rhode Island Quality Institute explains. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The realization is dawning, even for the most curmudgeonly amongst us, that access to complete patient data is a must-have. We need it to deliver high patient outcomes, and we also need it to avoid preventable never-event types of errors. And so, the time of the HIE is upon us. This episode, Laura Adams from the Rhode Island Quality Institute tells us what we need to know now about health information exchanges. My name is Stacy Richter, and this episode is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Laura. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about the Rhode Island Quality Institute. What is your mission? The mission of the Institute is to significantly improve the health of the state and the quality, safety, and value of healthcare. You are what is commonly referred to as a health information exchange as at least one of the services that you offer, right? That's correct. What is, for those who are not as familiar with these terms, what is a health information exchange? I think in the industry, we laugh because if you've seen one health information exchange, you've seen one. Uh, but I think that the general concept of a health information exchange is to address the problem that most of us have experienced with our families or even ourselves, where we move from provider to provider, but our data doesn't go with us. I think we, we all know that we live in an era now where, you know, Domino's may remember every pizza you ever ordered, but the healthcare system has difficulty getting your last lab test across the street if it's to a competitor. So the health information exchange is designed to make your data as a patient available wherever, whenever it's needed to you, your family, your providers. One longitudinal record is the goal of the HIE in the state of Rhode Island and also to have a database that we can then help with public health. We can begin to add great value to research endeavors in the state. So it has a number of different goals, but primarily it's to make sure that the data follows the patient. If I'm picturing this in my head, I'm kind of picturing a hub that kind of the center of a wheel with spokes and the spokes lead to all of the hospital systems and providers that are in the area and everyone's feeding their data into sort of a central repository. Would that be a good mental image? That is a good mental image. And uh, over time, the data flowing in would include data coming from patients. So patient-loaded data or patient-generated data is also what will be uploaded into the system so that there can be a very comprehensive record. And the data flows, of course, aren't one way. They are bi-directional. And in the case of systems like Epic in the state of Rhode Island or Athena, those providers don't even have to leave their electronic health record to access that rich database for their patients if they're in, involved in our HIE. You mentioned two things that I want to circle back to in a moment, which is patient interaction with an HIE. In other words, uploading quantified self type of patient data, and then also this bi-directional within the EHR system. 
But one of the things that I'd like to get to first is how difficult is this? I mean, what is the biggest problem? We've seen throughout the industry of HIEs and they have had a long and sordid history over the years. I mean, I don't know when the first HIE was, but I think it was a decade ago at least. What has been the issues with their uptake? I think that in general, so many health information exchanges did not succeed despite the best of intentions. And it it felt a bit to me like there were probably a couple of reasons for that, not the least of which was I, I think it was regarded in the beginning as an IT project. I don't know that we really understood deeply the ramifications uh, this had for communities. This uh, required uh, deep levels of trust. This required rock-solid commitment to a true north of the safest, highest quality care possible for patients. And if you didn't go into it with that sort of goal in mind under that umbrella, I think it quickly became a problematic situation where people were, some were wanting to share the data, others were not. There were power structures involved and there wasn't any sort of moral high road to begin to call the question on, you know, what business are we in? We want to share this information because, frankly, patients' lives depend on it. So I think that was one of the big issues. Secondly, it seems to me, too, that in terms of new uptake of new systems, we clearly saw that, for example, in Rhode Island, there had to be over $100 million in meaningful use incentives to really get us past the tipping point on electronic health records. Providers are busy, they're stressed, they have a lot going on in their lives. It's a tumultuous time for them. They're trying to transition to patient-centered medical home or ICD-10 or just any number of stresses that are on them. So I think that one more thing of bringing in data from all these different areas, if you are struggling with your own workflows right now, it can just seem like an insurmountable task. So we know that we can't just provide HIE services, but we have to provide the services that help doctors through the transitions of integrating them into their workflow. So I think if you didn't see that sort of bigger picture, both on the kind of moral high road side and also on the practical execution side, you were in for a rough ride. I can see how as a provider with so many different priorities that are becoming fire drills that you need to really consider how you sequence those priorities. That something like an HIE, you know, it's kind of the, um, what's that uh, game theory term? It's the... The, the term is, neg- uh, is tragedy of the commons. Yeah. So that you've got kind of a tragedy of the commons that is going on, whereby if you participate, you don't necessarily get an immediate gain. If I have my data, I have my data as a provider. So there's really no incentive for me to necessarily share my data. There's certainly an incentive for me to go get other people's data for all the reasons that you just said. If I'm trying to prevent a readmission and I only have half the patient's health record, obviously things become difficult. Do you see that? I see it across the country. I don't see it so much in Rhode Island. We had long, in-depth conversations about why we were doing this. What was the rationale? What were we trying to accomplish? What did done look like? And so when we approached it with the idea of this is about the best in patient care, and and I, I think that was helped by one physician that relayed a story during a critical time when we were mulling this over as a community. And he said, look, my patient came into one of our hospitals clutching his chest. This patient had a history of a heart attack and said so. He happened to go into the hospital that wasn't his regular hospital, was the other competing large hospital system. And 
those physicians were operating in basically an information-free zone where they didn't have information on this patient. So they did an EKG, which is an appropriate step to take when patients having chest pain. The EKG appeared that the patient had a pattern, a tracing that would suggest another heart attack. So they treated them with a very potent clot buster drug, appropriate for a heart attack situation. Unfortunately, that patient wasn't having a heart attack, and the effect of that drug was to open up a brain bleed that that patient spent 11 days in the ICU fighting for his life, and then any number of months later uh, fighting to regain basic abilities because of this brain bleed. What was known later was that had they just had the EKG tracing from his primary care doctor, literally you know, almost down the street, or his cardiologist that was in the same vicinity, they would have seen that that tracing was the same as it's been for two years since his valve replacement. They would have looked for another cause and perhaps they would have found the pancreatitis that the patient did have. I think the telling of that story caused it to become sort of morally unpopular in the state of Rhode Island to even suggest that you would not contribute your data. It, it was hard to hear that story told in a number of different public venues and then suggest that you might not contribute. We also have our board meetings open at the Rhode Island Quality Institute. Transparency is huge for us because we don't sign anybody's paychecks. We don't have money to give out. We don't regulate or make laws. So we don't, we, the only power we have is the power of vision and the power of what we're trying to accomplish. So we did keep the board meetings open and people do line the walls that are non-board members. So it would have been difficult. And I'm not saying that anybody would have acted otherwise, but it did when your behavior is public there is something about that sense of compelling you to do what's in the best interest of the most people. Do you find that, you know, I don't think that it is any secret in this country. I mean, and maybe this is just very evident from my perspective as a healthcare economist. It's more than a coincidence that I see in my day-to-day -day life. If you want to encourage an organization to do almost anything, there has to be some sort of financial incentive involved. That's just a pattern that I see very clearly in my day-to-day -day work. <laughs> <laughs> and there is certainly financial incentive to hoard data. How do you see that balance? I mean, obviously, as you said before, it is a true north and patient lives get saved when data is shared. And, you know, you, you gave that anecdote and I know you have others relative to how important it is to make sure that a patient's complete health record travels with them. Because when there's missing information, there's just a huge risk of errors being made. But at the same time, there's financial incentive to hoard data. I think that what we also had the benefit of, I think, was some prescience and understanding that the payment system couldn't sustain itself under fee-for-service. It, it just, that, that model had to change, that we were the only industry that could inflict a defect on our customer, if you will, and then bill them to fix it. So we could maybe not wash our hands and an infection would result and we would actually get paid to mop up that infection. We could not monitor medications appropriately and have a medication error happen. And if there were catastrophic effects of that, we were paid to straighten out those catastrophic effects. It was quite an, an interesting and, and toxic situation. But I think we also knew in Rhode Island that that just wasn't going to last. And as soon as the never events came out from CMS, we started to see a tectonic shift in the idea that we would be allowed to continue to operate that way as an industry. It was a long time in coming, but the payment for value system, the most savvy 
providers, I think, began to see early on. You know, there's going to come a time where my data hoarding is going to cause people to withhold their data from me, a quid pro quo. I don't think I want to start that behavior because I'm going to need their data. So I think there was a sense in Rhode Island that this was going to become financially uh, disadvantageous to anybody that didn't play because it would be unlikely that others would want to engage them, permit them to play at the same level others were if they were unwilling to, to share their data. So there's become now a financial incentive from the sense that we know that as ACOs form uh, accountable care organizations, people are trying to take care of a population of patients, keep them the most healthy, a defined population. We know this is the United States of America and people have a lot of choice. They go to different providers. You need that information. Leakage happens. And now I believe that people are beginning to understand that this is just an essential element of succeeding under an ACO, a payment for value strategy. So finally, finally, the financial incentives have become aligned with this. What are some of the success stories that you may have seen in Rhode Island that have been a direct result of providers of different ilks and systems and, and capacities sharing information together? I think that the, everything from the larger ROI studies that we've done for return on investment, such as we know that if uh, you get the alerts that our health information exchange generates for any provider in the state for their patient panel, that your patient is 13% less likely to be readmitted to the hospital, and they're 20% less likely to have an emergency room readmit. So we know that Frankly, those are the only two things we've gone in depth with so far with our analysis. We're working now on a reduction of duplication. We're understanding a bit more about the effect of the HIE on stopping duplication of tests when there's been a test done or uh, imaging study done and you now have access to it. There are also, I think, anecdotal things that we're excited to hear. We know that there's a, been a long-term very competent but not necessarily um, warm and fuzzy emergency room physician at one of our largest hospitals who said to the CEO of that hospital, with this integration of this into my EPIC system, this thing has now become indispensable for me for delivering emergency care. I can tell you, I was almost um, got a tear in my eye when I heard that after many years of, of working to hear something like that. And then we were also successful recently in launching a dashboard for nurse care managers, where it's one thing to get random alerts that come in to an, a mailbox and somebody triages them. It's quite another thing to capture all of an alerts for a particular practice and serve them up to them in a real-time manner. So a nurse care manager can have open at her desk or his desk this system that allows them from our HIE to see who's in the emergency room right now, this moment, not who was there last week, not who was high risk last year, but who's there right now, who's in the hospital right now, who was dismissed an hour ago. And that type of real-time serving up of information, I think for us, when we start to hear the clinicians that first launched that and tested that to say, this is the best data ever, and this is a game changer. When they start using that terminology, we know we're onto something and it's something big. Well, congratulations. That is high praise. Thank you. So these alerts that you had mentioned, what do they typically alert a provider of? Is it that a patient has been admitted to the emergency room or are there other aspects of that? You know, we're excited about it because it's extensible in the sense that we can alert to just about anything. So in looking at what 
alerts we may build in the future. At the present time, we alert to hospital and ER admission and discharge, but we're busy working on what we're calling intelligent alerts. So an example of an intelligent alert would be the patient goes into the hospital and they were at home taking one class of drugs. They come out of the hospital on that same class of drugs, but they are taking two different brand names. And we want to be able to send an alert to the nurse care manager saying, You might want to make sure that that patient doesn't take both the red pill and the blue pill because it's the same thing. It's just a different brand name now. We want to be able to alert, uh, for example, I had a little episode of breast cancer not too long ago, and it made me start to think about things. I I was waiting for a sentinel node biopsy to come back after I'd had my um, mastectomy surgery. And they told me we'd be back in about 10 days. 10 days seem like an eternity to find out whether they've gotten all the cancer or whether it was coursing through the rest of my body. So 10 days came and went and two weeks came and went. And I talked to my family and said, you know, we're going to have to take one for the team here. You know what business I'm in. I'm going to have to see how long this goes. We could only last another week before we were a bit frantic to find out. I called my oncologist and I think the world of her, but she said, oh, Laura, oh, gosh, how are you? Nobody called you? Oh, hey, you're good. You're good. Um, congratulations. Ow, and I know wow. she, didn't, <laughs> she didn't mean to sound cavalier. She did not mean to. I, I think she didn't know what to do at that moment. It, and then she said a minute later, oh, it looks like your test has been back for 11 days. And the, the, the feeling that overcame me at that moment, I had put so much thought into how am I going to react if the news is bad? How am I going to react if the news is good? And what I never anticipated was having a feeling of just abject anger because the system just, I just fell through the cracks and I don't know how long I would have gone. And then I I, I got to thinking at that time, I'm alerting a doctor to all kinds of things. Why wouldn't we build a capacity to alert patients and families? So to alert me, hey, your lab test is back. Maybe not tell me if I had more cancer or but at least tell me your lab test has been back 11 days ago because those weren't 11 days. Those were 11 sleepless nights. And I start thinking about, for example, a woman in a domestic abuse situation. So she's admitted again to the emergency department. She can't really pick up her cell phone that he might be monitoring and text her sister that she's there. But we could send an alert out of our health information exchange and she could designate an alert to go to her sister to say, Hey, I'm back in the ED. It happened again. So when I start thinking about the possibilities here, so someone falls and breaks a hip in their home, they could have their admission alert, go to their daughter in Pennsylvania. Why not? So the possibilities for alerts, I think, are literally endless. It's very exciting. Yeah, that certainly is. And it sounds like based on the way that you're you're speaking about it, that this is within our grasp. This isn't something that we're thinking about for the next century or something. Oh, that's right. In fact, we received recently an Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT grant for $2.7 million to begin to pull in more of our long-term care. Long-term care was underfunded in most of the high-tech activities going on, but we've recently received this grant, and part and parcel of that is to begin to build out this alert capacity for the families of people uh, in long-term care situations and uh, post-acute care. So this is happening right now. So it, it's not on the drawing board. We certainly have big, big visions for something like this. I mean, when you think about how this might help a, an ACO, for example, we've got a group of high-risk patients, maybe it's congestive heart failure. 
those patients are at home and their lungs are filling up with fluid in the days before their inevitable admission if we don't intervene. We've kind of been in the habit of come and get it care. So we wait until that patient is unable to breathe and and shows up at our doorstep and we treat them. That's not a good idea under accountable care payment structure. So we may want for just our high-risk patients a simple mat on the floor that they get up in the morning, stand on it for a few minutes, it Bluetooths up their weight to the health information exchange, which is you know, it's a multi-million dollar, super sophisticated system that can monitor that data day and night, 24-7, 365. And then a physician could tell us when they want to be alerted to something. So for example, hey, let my nurse care manager know if that patient picks up seven pounds in two days. Because if that's the case, we want to get on the phone with them, manage their meds, do some other interventions. And that patient will be home with their family on Friday night and not drowning in their own fluids in one of our EDs. So that's another example of where an alerting to a nurse care manager could be a game changer, again, for institutions that are looking to develop what the IOM once referred to as the continuous healing relationships. And how do you determine what alerts and what things to focus on? Are these the things that you do in your open board meetings that the health systems get together and they, you know, you put a bunch of post-it notes on the wall of possible things and then you organize them and, and the one that everybody wants is the one that gets done first? We have advisory committees, an employer advisory committee that is co-chaired by Brown University and Amica Insurance. We have a consumer a very active consumer advisory committee that frankly has been active for years and was instrumental in our privacy and security framework that has earned us so much trust in that community. It certainly wasn't the easy path forward, but it earned us trust. We have a group that focuses primarily on the IT, but it's from the community, the chief information officers out there. We have a provider group that we listen to intently. We're also engaged in other external activities. So our state innovation models grant, we're there at every one of those meetings. I'm on the governor's newly appointed work group for healthcare innovation. I hear what people are talking about. We're also engaged in our all-payer, the patient-centered medical home initiative. So we attend those meetings. We sit there. We line the walls in that case. And we listen to what they're struggling with, what they want to see happening as they move their initiatives forward. And then we take that information back and say, these are the pain points. Here's what we're hearing, the, the biggest concern. We were hearing all over the place, long-term care, not engaged. We, you know, we, we, they have no money to be engaged. Can't somebody go get some funding? So we were fortunate enough to go get $2.7 to try to begin to bring that group in. So that's where we get our best ideas is listening to others as they're publicly sharing their struggles in transforming this delivery system. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I've heard it said many times that if you want to find the biggest, best idea, you find the biggest, worst problem. So exactly. <laughs> I want to circle back to something that you had said earlier, which was enabling patients to upload their own data into the HIE. How do you see that going down? I mean, do, do you see patients having their own dashboard or interface with the HIE or what does that look like? We do see that. It was one of the other revelations for me as I went through my experience with breast cancer. In fact, I I think that was a bit of a gift from the universe to help wake me up to some things that I couldn't possibly see unless I had that experience. So I began realizing that I was collecting up all of the data in Rhode Island and making it available primarily to providers 
And we hadn't given as much thought to the idea of why wouldn't a patient, family member, consumer want to be able to have access to their longitudinal record through a portal. But, but frankly, not too many people wake up and say, I kill for a portal. So it wasn't so much the portal idea. It was, what about a MyMeds app? So if they were anywhere in the world, they could tap on their iPhone or their device and be able to show the clinician in front of them exactly the medications they're on that they didn't have to transcribe and put in the upload into the system is sort of a, I think that was the bit of a failure with PHRs. And I always worried about PHRs because I did make a catastrophic medical error on a very young child, seven years old, and I nearly took that child's life early in my career. And it had to do with a misplaced decimal point where I gave that child a 10 times overdose of the drug scopolamine. I can tell you, you only have to do that once and you never forget the effect of that. Never. By the grace of God, that child's life was saved that day. But I began thinking about this idea of PHRs where patients were uploading their data. And we felt like, no, we really have to give them access to what's inside of current care, our HIE, so that they have it coming straight from the pharmacy, no transcription, that type of thing. So we know that for them to upload their own data, that becomes incredibly important. And again, for me, the realization happened when I was having a biopsy a surgical biopsy on my breast, and they were lowering the anesthesia mask to my face. And my last instant terrorized thought was, gee, I know that bad things can happen even in the best of situations. I know that I could have a medical error happen to me while I'm under anesthesia. And I want, if that should happen, something catastrophic, God forbid, I want my organs shared everywhere and I don't want my family bankrupted by trying to prolong my life. But where was my advanced directive? my advanced directive, I dutifully brought it in on a piece of paper, folded it up. It was in my purse, locked in a cubby. Who knew it was there? Nobody but me. And I got to thinking, go back home to this HIE and find a way for that patient to upload their advanced directive so they never have to be worried about carrying paper from here to there and be essentially being the courier service for the delivery system. So I think that that kind of patient-loaded data, there's kind of data that only the patient can provide. What's the pain level post your hip replacement? How many steps are you able to take at home? These are the kinds of things that gaps that we have to fill in and only the patient can do it. So we see that being done through a portal that will allow them to take up the data again we see more and more quantified self-type things where uh, glucose readings will go up uh, and reading after reading after reading. We don't want our providers to have to sift through all of those to try to find some important pattern. We can detect it. We can detect a pattern. We can notify you when we see that pattern. So it's linking the patient and the doctor closer and closer and closer together. How do you see providers interacting with that patient shared data? So in the example of a glucose reading, for example, obviously that makes a ton of sense and that is a critical medical marker. There are a lot of other things, like, for example, you had mentioned Fitbit steps. So if a patient is using the portal or maybe they've just got, you know, like you've got the health app on an iPhone, so maybe the HIE is integrated with that health app and there's a lot of Patient information that might be really interesting to the patient, but let's just say is not necessarily critical to a provider or a provider today in my typical mind view. Is it going to become an issue or do you see it as an issue that our providers are going to have to sift through 
massive amounts of what might be considered noise data in order to get to something critical or will you have algorithms that exactly like you said, if glucose readings start to go through the roof or very wildly or whatever that critical marker is, then you're alerting the patient. Or I could just see a situation where there might be a lot of data and it'd be hard to find the needles in the haystack. That's our biggest concern as well. And I think that's the biggest value of the HIE is that we have a very configurable system. So uh, what's on our drawing board is the ability of the doctor to go in and say, I only want to know if this pattern. So I might want to know if this patient's glucose has been over 300 three or four times. Don't give me any of the others of that. Don't give me, by the way, um, this patient, I don't need anything from their Fitbit except their sleep data because we're working on sleep issues with this patient and we're working on depression issues which have such a relationship to sleep. So please only tell me if this pattern of sleep disruption happens. So we want to be able to allow those providers to go in, pick and choose what data, and let the system sift it for them. So they identify the priorities, and we'd like to have it there available because one never knows when somebody wants to look back at a pattern of what was their sleep patterns like before we started this medication six months ago. Was it better? Was it worse? So we don't know that that sleep pattern might not become valuable in the future. So the idea that we can place it in the HIE, I mean, it's just, it again, the data that you can store there is just tremendous amounts of data. So we would like to collect all that up. And then over time, as it becomes important, then the providers can decide how it is they want to see it or they want us to, hey, run an analysis on this list of patients. Tell me these various characteristics. We have also a plan for them to submit to us data requests that we could then generate for them that most practices, particularly if you're talking about a small practice, I mean, really, some of these have you know, their micro practice where they just have one provider and maybe the sister-in-law runs the front desk. Those practices are not going to have that kind of capability and capacity, but a shared resource that we consider in Rhode Island as a public utility can have that kind of capacity. They can have big time capacity for running those types of analytics uh, because there's a shared resource here that we've all paid for. So give me an example of a request that a patient might put in for an analytic assessment. I was talking about a provider putting it in for a patient. So to for so a provider to say, look, we're really worried about sleep issues now. Can you pull out for this group of patients what their sleep patterns might look like? Uh, so um, now patients, I have to put more thought to that yet. I haven't thought about how to make sure patients don't have to sift through their own data. Obviously, we put the sleep pattern with the sleep pattern. We put the blood pressures with the blood pressures, the meds with the meds. Those types of things are, they're, they're not all commingled. So it's not like, here's the record you have for from this provider. By the way, here's another set of labs in this record over here, this PDF from another provider. That is not what it looks like. And our HIE pulls that data in, parses it. It puts the labs with the labs, the meds with the meds, the images with the imaging reports and so forth. I could see how as a patient that would be really interesting because what you're trying to figure out is what your own trend is, for example. So having all these disparate lab tests or whatever you're looking at in very different locations, I mean, basically what you're going to wind up doing is making your own Excel sheet or something which exactly. kind of defeats the purpose. That's right. And, and I think that's my biggest concern about some of the models of other HIEs. They are these uh, query models where you make a query out and it will return you the 
different continuity of care documents or sort of PDFs, if you will, of the data. And it's your job to go through each and every one of those and pull out the critical data. I don't know any provider that has the time to do that. So I think that was another reason we wanted to go with a centralized database so that we could pull that in and make sure that the data gets arranged in the, in the way that they're best able to be used. So I'm a little bit cognizant of time, but I did want to ask you one thing, which I promised to ask you very early in this conversation. You had mentioned that if a provider has, let me see if I, uh, this is a test of my note-taking skills, Epic Athena, Athena, mm-hmm. that they don't even have to leave their EHR in order to see the HIE information. So basically, you've done some integration work with those EHR systems. That's correct. And those systems were the first on our list because of readiness of the providers in our area, readiness of the EHR. We're going straight down the list. Meditech is next, and they're they're coming up imminently within the next month or so for the same type of bidirectional flow. And we, we've already achieved it with NextGen in the state as well. I forgot to mention NextGen. So we're going down the list of our major providers and making sure that we're connecting in that way because that that's kind of what people have been asking for from the beginning. And as these systems develop, the EHR systems develop, for example, in Epic and Athena, you can actually choose to import some of the data from the HIE as much as you want, as little as you want into your own record and bring it in. Now, it's not all data fields because the standards aren't developed yet. So we're a little bit at the mercy of standards development and of the readiness of the EHR vendors. But for those that are ready, we're moving forward very quickly. And that was huge. We didn't really, I think, quite understand that the the trouble of leaving an EHR going into the HIE, putting in the password was as big a barrier as it really was. Because uh, now that uh, it was what caused that emergency room physician to say, now this is indispensable. How that looks is I'm in my EHR system. I call up a patient record, uh, you know, I type in a patient name and there's a button someplace or something that says, boop, boop, boop. There's some information in the HIE, you know, about Mm -hmm. this patient. Yes. And then I click on it and now then I'm taken directly, you know, in a single sign on kind of fashion right into the portal, right into that patient's information. Exactly. There's no other interim step. No password goes in. It's it's been imported because of the uh, legal agreements that we have with the entities that have established that bidirectional flow. Uh, we have a lot of state laws that we comply with and some that we were instrumental in helping to bring about for privacy and security and so forth. So the system is quite sophisticated in that sense. But no, there's no more sign-on, no more interim step before they can just access that information. And now we're th- uh, as the doctors are using it and beginning to feed, again, back information for us to customize, we've heard from emergency room doctors, you know, I, I actually don't want to go straight into just the all the stuff that could possibly be there. What I'm interested in going in and finding is give me a summary sheet that pops up and I want I may want to know the last three months of this or the last six months of that. Don't give me the last five years of it. Just call out that, pop it up and, and show it to me. We have other physicians that are talking to us about customizations that we're now implementing. One was we had a lot of concern from our pediatricians who said, you know, we're worried that 
other providers, for example, maybe ED physicians, might not have at the top of their mind that special covenant that we have with adolescents where they can talk to us about birth control, they can talk to us about other things, and we don't share that with parents. We want to make sure that any provider accessing that record understands that covenant and, frankly, the laws associated with it. So they weren't comfortable until we were able to put up, and we're we're putting this in place right now, a pop-up that say an emergency room physician is seeing an adolescent, they want to access their record, that pop-up would come in front saying, hey, just a reminder that this is an adolescent, this information is confidential, and no mentioning of the pregnancy test the patient had in front of the parent. You know, it's not in so many words, of course, but it's those kinds of things now that we're beginning to build in that are giving higher and higher comfort levels and higher and higher usage. Where can people find more about the Rhode Island Quality Institute if they are interested. They can certainly check our website at www.riqi.org. They can email me directly at ladams at riqi.org. So that's ladams, A-D-A-M-S, at riqi, as in Rhode Island Quality Institute.org. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure, Stacey. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.